Hello and welcome to the Risk Experience Podcast. In recent times, firms of all sizes have had access to large collections of customer data. This is obviously a treasure trove for driving business intelligence, if managed well. Unfortunately, these big data are complex to manage, organize and even make deductions from. The firm that overcomes these challenges is able to outperform its competition and improve its growth. In this episode of the Risk Experience Podcast, we discuss the task of architecting enterprise intelligence to extract insights from data. I have here with me Dr. Praduna Upadrashta, Chief Data Science Officer at Mastec Infotrellis. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Prad. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. It's great to have you on the show. So let's begin with you telling us a bit about Mastec Infotrellis in terms of what you do, who you are, and the services you offer. So Mastec Infotrellis is a specialty data and analytics company formed when Mastec Digital, our parent company, acquired InfoTrellis in, I think, two, 2017. Uh, the founders of the InfoTrellis business were well-known in the industry as sort of the pioneers of master data management. Um, the present leadership consists of essentially seasoned leaders and practitioners in the data and analytics space, whose primary interest is to uh, reimagine the way enterprises approach the challenge of extracting knowledge and insights from their data. So the best description of our offering is that we essentially architect enterprise intelligence. Our thesis is about helping businesses to learn to learn faster because that will be the key differentiator in the present AI-powered economy. Right. So our sort of very reason for existence, if you will, is to architect enterprise intelligence, allowing businesses to develop the infrastructure, the methodologies, the strategies, the practices, uh, the algorithms that will enable them to learn faster. Um, This is of course predicated on their data. So if you can't operationalize your data, you really have no chance of learning from it and uh, certainly no chance of winning. Right, that is very good. So what does it mean to architect enterprise intelligence? Uh, Great question. So we need to step back a bit, I think, to understand this idea of enterprise intelligence. Uh, We start with the word intelligence. Right. What is intelligence? Uh, Well, it is the ability to learn and not just learn, but to learn fast. Um, Embedded in this idea is the notion that the faster you learn, the more sustainable competitive advantage that you have over your competition. So Enterprise intelligence really uh, sort of refers to this idea of learning at enterprise scale. Uh, this will contribute to what uh, you know Warren Buffett used to refer to as a moat of differentiation. So we think that uh, true functional enterprise AI will actually strengthen a business's ability to control or own its own market. And those who do not effectively leverage AI aren't learning fast enough. And this will relegate them sort of to becoming footnotes in history. I see. That is very interesting. So how common are enterprise intelligence architectures in the industry currently? Uh, Now, many enterprises have uh, what you call an enterprise information architecture, but almost no one really has uh, what what we call a full-blown enterprise intelligence architecture. Right. And the distinction is this. um, Essentially, it boils down to how efficiently you're able to extract insights from your data to drive decision-making. And information architecture emphasizes, you know, the storage of data, uh, but uh, an intelligence architecture really emphasizes the extraction of knowledge and insights. And then those insights uh, ultimately drive action. 
So learning to learn faster means we are maximizing the use of data from across the enterprise to understand our business as our primary edge in the marketplace. Right. That is very impressive. So would you say architecting enterprise intelligence is a modern day concept? And also, does it have anything to do with the recent development in artificial intelligence? Well, back in the day, a uh, military Air Force colonel named uh, John Boyd uh, described a concept known as the OODA loop. OODA loop actually stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. So it was sort of a a methodology device to train leaders to take decisions under uncertainty in complex and, I guess, stressful scenarios. For instance, when you're dealing with an opponent in wartime. Exactly. The OODA loop sort of represents a way of thinking about how people process information and take action, right? Right. Um, so specifically, if you imagine yourself and your enemy as processing through your respective OODA loops when you're making decisions, then if you could get through your OODA loop faster before your opponent had time to get through theirs, you actually had a sustainable advantage that cumulatively gave you a massive edge. Um, and, and we sort of think we can apply the same concept to the modern enterprise, right? Right. So if uh, two businesses go through their decision-making cycles in a given amount of time, and one business goes through its cycle, you know, let's say five times faster than the other, then it is with mathematical certainty that the business that learns to learn faster will inevitably dominate the market, leaving nothing for its competitor in second place. Exactly. So if you really understand the significance of this idea, then you'll understand the true importance of what we call the AI revolution. Uh, this AI revolution is not really about machine learning or artificial general intelligence or any other sort of technological abstraction. It is about learning. Uh, that is um, human learning, um, or in the aggregate, we could say it's about systemic or enterprise learning. Right. And a business is really just a group of people executing a set of processes under a common umbrella or goal. And if, if it can collectively learn faster about itself, its market, its customers, its risks, faster than its competitors, then with mathematical certainty, that business will eventually own its market. And I think um, CXOs and their boards need to deeply internalize this point, or they will miss the boat and find themselves quickly outpaced. We have put out a white paper to emphasize this point, and it is freely downloadable from our website. All right, that is a really great explanation. So what is the motivation behind adopting enterprise intelligence architecting as your primary service line? So enterprise intelligence is sort of our shorthand for the idea that the business of the future will be a single integrated intelligence system that understands itself, right? Right. In other words, the evolution of the enterprise through AI technology will eventually lead to a point where the enterprise becomes self-aware, so to speak. Right. Um, by aware, we don't necessarily mean that, you know, it's going to become conscious or something so ambitious. But we mean that all the data in the enterprise will be fully utilized for the purpose of driving decision-making in a coherent way from bottom to top. Exactly. Suppose you're the CEO, right? If you ask a question such as, how will COVID-19 impact my sales next quarter? Uh, the intelligence architecture of tomorrow would be able to answer that query through data gathered from across the organization combined with detailed knowledge of the business, the faculty of reasoning achieved through computation to arrive at an answer or a set of answers that provides 
some insight into the question. Now, the entire process of asking the question to arrive at an answer would be greatly sped up by the computational architecture of the intelligent enterprise, such that it would be nearly instantaneous. If you remember back to like sci-fi shows like Star Trek, The Next Generation back in the 90s, where human would essentially interact with uh, their AI counterpart in the form of either the ship or the car, essentially it made the human being more powerful right? And their ability to process information, right? to have greater situational awareness, to review their options, and to take decisive action. Exactly. That's a fascinating concept. So what are the components of an enterprise intelligence architecture? Yeah, great question. Uh, So we've defined a reference architecture that consists of essentially four key components that are critical to what we call our knowledge strategy, which is sort of reverse engineering the end goal which is to enable AI to translate our queries into a graph search problem that ultimately plays out on the knowledge graph of the enterprise data. I see. To do this, we need, one, a massive, scalable, elastic data store that can gather all the data from the various parts of the business in a consolidated location accessible to the system. We call this the data ocean. Right. Two, We need a way to systematically clean and package that data into a set of data products through a set of AI-powered data quality algorithms, which treat the incoming data as a signal and apply a set of filters that lead to a curated output, which we call the data product. Three, we need an elastic scalable data store that can hold these curated data products with a view to being a trusted source system of record for production applications. Right. And four, we need an ontology store or graph database that can be used as an intermediary computational engine to allow us to combine machine learning and knowledge graph analytics as a way of deriving knowledge and insights from the data. So the knowledge graph would serve as sort of the foundational element of a sort of schemaless data model, if you will, that defines the backbone of a dynamic data fabric. Um, when I say dynamic, I just mean that the data fabric is evolving as it learns from new data. Exactly. So new evidence from the world could potentially override previously learned connections in the data fabric, right? So causing it to evolve its form. Um, this evolution of, of the knowledge graph would ultimately serve as sort of the knowledge base of the enterprise. Um, the ontology store would basically serve as the backbone of the computational engine that essentially orchestrates everything from data management to data engineering to data science. That is really interesting. So essentially, we have the raw data, the production or clean data, the application or models that use the production data, and finally, We have the output that goes into an ontology store. What is an ontology? So today's machine learning algorithms are largely blind to the data that they're using to drive decision-making, right? Right. So this means that when you apply an ML algorithm to a domain, you assume that the underlying conditions are identical to those in which the algorithm was trained. Um, Essentially, it doesn't know what it's looking at. To validate this assumption, Often you need a team of data scientists to understand the models and their implications and a team of SMEs who understand the business context to ensure that the model is being applied to the right set of data under the right circumstances and so on. Exactly. And an ontology 
allows you to teach machines to understand the data they're working with, right? So the notion of, say, a context expressed in the language of graph theory and the underlying sort of mathematical formalisms of set theory and group algebra. So if I wanted to represent a concept, I would do so by referring to a suite of other concepts. As an example, let's say I wanted to describe the concept of a checking account. Well, I would proceed by describing all the ways that people are associated with and use checking accounts. For instance, they store money in checking accounts. They make payments from checking accounts, and they might withdraw money from checking accounts and so on. Right. By providing enough context around how checking accounts and people and institutions interact, one would eventually have a large corpus of analogous detail that enables them to understand the principle of a checking account. Now, these relationships could be expressed as a set of directed acyclic graphs having what we call a triplicate structure, right? So they consist of a subject, an object, and a predicate, right? Right. Without going into more detail, the idea is that any concept-to-concept relationship can essentially be expressed in this triplicate format and stored as a graph, for instance, in a graph database. Um, These concepts, once you store them, you can also search through using graph traversal. So a problem of defining a concept or an object or a business rule could then be reformulated as sort of a problem of graph search. It is convenient sort of as a way of enabling a computer to contextualize the data that it's working with in reference to other data in a sort of self-referential concept dictionary, if you will. Ultimately, this supports the goal of capturing enterprise intelligence because implicitly, intelligence in our view implies that we are exploiting knowledge in a meaningful way. Exactly. So by gathering all the data, system and transactional, et cetera, all the IoT data in the enterprise and then recasting it in the form of a knowledge graph, we're able to translate the problem of deriving knowledge and insights from data into a computational process of graph search. And I should like to add that the ontology not only serves as the output, but because this is an iterative process, it is an input into the system as well. Right. In other words, we use ontologies to solve some very difficult problems, much like we can say we use machine learning to solve a variety of problems. Right. So from what you just described, it appears the success of any intelligence architecture relies on the availability of good quality data. Do we necessarily require big data to develop an efficient enterprise intelligence architecture? Big data plays an essential role in architecting enterprise intelligence. For example, companies like Walmart are preparing to process nearly two and a half petabytes of data per hour generated by system and transactional data from across their 20,000 retail locations. I see. Uh, What they're essentially attempting to do is to build an enterprise intelligence architecture that enables them to have real-time situational awareness of the state of their business and to derive insights from that data to improve their resiliency, their competitiveness, their understanding of their customer, to reduce their cost structure, and also to grow their revenues and market share, right? Right. Now, even a conservative number of, say, 50 key business processes per retail location Mm -hmm. yields a mind-boggling 1 million business processes contextualized by location, demographics, 
policies, et cetera, to track and manage at the enterprise level. So the numbers quickly add up when we're talking about enterprise scale. I see. So from the Walmart example you just described, it seems significant investment in IT infrastructure is needed to design an intelligence architecture. How much computing power and IT infrastructure does a business need to roll out an effective intelligence architecture? Great question. Um, This depends largely on the nature of the business. In other words, its size and scale. Right. Ultimately, we assume that all businesses that learn to learn faster are essentially their growing businesses, which means that the intelligence infrastructure will grow in proportion with the size and scale of the operations of the business. Um, To enable this, they will increasingly depend heavily on modern, scalable, elastic data centers and clouds. Right. The move to cloud infrastructure, you know, is inevitable. Um, The access to and use of elastic compute is also, I think, very inevitable. Um, There will at some point be a recognition that the number of processing cores will in some way be like a proxy for one's ability to learn from data. Um, However, I think on the low end, this can be as simple as a single machine. I mean, there's no barrier to entry in terms of the minimal architecture. The point really is that the process of learning from data is so rich in rewards that even a small effort in that direction can often yield a large ROI, right? So to the extent that the inevitable investment in large-scale infrastructure is almost guaranteed by the business case for it. Exactly. To make my point abundantly clear, throughout my career as a data scientist, I've consistently delivered ROI anywhere from 10x to 200x. This might seem shocking, but that is because data science as a profession is littered with people who really don't understand what they're doing, nor what is possible. Right. I've overseen and architected end-to-end projects that started out as concepts in my head being rolled out to production systems that have generated nearly a half a billion dollars for clients. I have worked on projects where, through unconventional methods that I developed, I've been able to show substantial opportunities to the tune of a quarter billion dollars to reduce potential liabilities for operators that manage large-scale fleets of physical assets. So the ROI from data science done well is substantial and real. Now, the problem is most organizations don't do data science correctly to realize these benefits. And this is compounded by the fact that, you know, unicorns are rare and mythical and whatnot. Um, But having an intelligence architecture, right, ultimately supports the pursuit of data science at scale through the use of AI. So it's an imperative if we were actually to realize the fruits of data, uh, data science. Exactly. I would say that a minimal intelligence architecture, again, depends on the particular needs of the organization and where they are on the maturity curve. Right. That is very interesting. So what areas of business do you see significant adoption of AI-based intelligence architecture? So there is no aspect of business that will not be touched by the adoption and rewards of AI technology. Um, That said, it is not a simple thing to deploy. It requires some sophistication and thoughtfulness around how it is deployed and how it is used. Right. There is very little expertise out there that organizations can rely on to understand how to go about doing this correctly. We are essentially organized as a company to have deep expertise in all of the aspects of the problem of building intelligent enterprise architecture. So there was a 
report by Gartner recently, and I forget which one, but it said that the future of data science will be largely through sort of a vendor or partnership model where companies will shift their data science and AI development activities to vendors that can actually bring deep expertise in data science while the companies themselves, you know, maintain minimal in-house data science capacity to orchestrate and realize the gains from their data science projects. I think that this model makes a lot of economic sense. It doesn't pay for clients to have deep expertise in, say, convolutional neural networks, for instance. It does, however, pay for them to have uh, in-house expertise in developing business use cases for developing AI-ready processes. Um, so in my view, we are filling that gap in the market where there is a serious lack of scalable talent that can be deployed to enable organizations to take advantage of this whole learning revolution. I see. That is very good. So how should a business loop through the intelligence architecture cycle and at what speed? Are there any timelines that need to be followed? This is a fascinating question on many levels. If you imagine, again, the OODA loop concept, it explains quite simply why data science has not yet cracked the C-level decision-making process in any significant way. Right. Um, simply put, most decision engines have a data pipeline that is too cumbersome to execute in a rapid timeline. If you ask a question such as, how will COVID-19 impact my sales next quarter? It would take teams of analysts and a data gathering and processing exercise that could take weeks or months to complete. And by that time, the question will be stale. Exactly. What we need to do is make the process of learning from data fast enough that it can intercede in the decision maker's OODA loop, ideally before they get to the decision stage. So if the intelligence architecture can cycle through its OODA loop long before the human goes from observe to orient, then it can have a meaningful impact on the decision-making cycle. So all of this is sort of predicated on an extremely efficient and tuned intelligence architecture designed explicitly for the purpose of deriving insights from data at scale. I see. Um, a simple example of where this is successful is earlier, you know, early in my career, I built a revenue management platform that enabled one company to use models to effectively drive pricing. The advantage of this approach is that it took less than 30 minutes to produce a pricing sheet from raw data, which normally would have taken an area pricing manager a week or more to put together. So by shortening the time to decision by providing accurate and data-driven guidance on pricing, it gave area managers the flexibility to spend that time in going through quality checks, validations, and ultimately in making more robust decisions. Now, this means that a process that used to take two to three weeks to complete is now completed in less than a week from end to end. In turn, you know, the gains from the model were so substantial that we essentially got the go-ahead to deploy it nationwide. So at a business process level, we certainly have many examples of successful data science deployments, but at the scale of being able to answer ad hoc queries, uh, we have a ways to go, I think. Um, a true enterprise intelligence architecture enables exactly this. All right, so at this point, let's touch on some of the specific situations in which an enterprise intelligence architecture would be useful. In the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of predictive models have failed because the variables on which they were trained no longer support the expected characteristics or macroeconomic scenarios or what you would call business cycles. Is there an opportunity for businesses to leverage their intelligence architecture to overcome such difficulties in their modeling? Absolutely. Um, 
I think it's actually a failure of understanding, uh, imagination, and process to discard a model just because the conditions have changed. Right. The basic idea of a model uh, is that it represents an expectation under a certain set of conditions. When those conditions change, sometimes a model is the best benchmark to understand exactly what has changed in a very systematic, quantitative way. In other words, when the mean of a process shifts, it is a signal that something has fundamentally changed. So a model that starts to fail can actually be an early marker before anything else that something fundamental about the market or the conditions is changing underneath your very feet. So I see it as almost a bellwether or, if you will, a canary in the coal mine. Exactly. So not exploiting that is, is kind of a failure of understanding the meaning and significance of a model. Now, organizations that know how to exploit this will be extremely successful in weathering difficult conditions. I would put it this way. Just because you learn to sail in calm waters does not mean that your expertise means nothing in a hurricane. Exactly. In fact, if you had two people, one who has trained as a sailor in calm waters and another who had zero sailing experience, I would still bet you that the sailor is the one you want to be driving your sailboat when dealing with a hurricane, right? Right. So as a simple practical example, our CEO, believe it or not, um, he codes in R and publishes you know, operational reports in latex. I haven't seen those since grad school. And people are basically used to drive our entire organization. Um, there are not many senior CXOs out there who can code in R or who use analytics as rigorously as we do. Um, that's how invested and bold we are in the use of technology to drive decision, you know, business decisions. I see. I think that as a direct result of our savvy use of analytics to understand our business conditions and also an extremely disciplined business model, we are one of the few companies that is, you know, weathering this COVID-19 situation in a sort of robust way. Uh, to me, this is an internal validation that our approach of closely aligning our decision-making, our operations, and our discipline with rigorous data analysis is extremely useful uh, when dealing with risk. Right. So typically, there's a lag between the onset of a global shock and when businesses would be able to retool their models with relevant data to produce accurate results. How does a well-designed enterprise intelligence architecture help bridge this gap? So as I stated before, the use of uh, traditional KPIs uh, can lead to a tremendous lag between onset of a shock and a response. Right. So having an efficient enterprise intelligence architecture can actually enable your organization to develop a very detailed understanding of the environment well in advance. For instance, through the failure of models to reflect reality, the sort of canary in the coal mine example I gave earlier. Exactly. Um, your business edge can come from the fact that you can develop custom KPIs, which your competitors are not using. People often say that their models generate insights. In my view, this is completely backwards. You know, models don't actually generate insights. Rather, the failure of models is what generates insights. Um, a model is sort of your best expectation of what you already know to be true. And an insight is fundamentally something that disrupts what you know. Right meaning what you know has failed. So uh, learning from that failure, you'll essentially be able to adapt, survive, and I think even thrive. Right. Still on the application of an enterprise intelligence architecture, 
A major problem in the AI ecosystem in particular lies with computer vision. If you consider self-driving vehicles, the major hurdle they are facing now is the ability to correctly identify objects in their way. This is one of the main reasons why self-driving vehicles haven't gained the popularity among individuals, regulators, and insurance companies. How does an enterprise intelligence architecture help AI systems learn more efficiently? I think uh, the value of a computer vision, right, depends entirely on the application. Right. While computer vision is not yet sophisticated enough to enable self-driving cars, it probably doesn't matter, right? An enterprise is less like a car and more like an oil tanker. An oil tanker, you know, moves relatively slow. It has very little traffic to contend with in the open waters. It basically makes very few decisions and it's subject to very few disruptions in its planned route relative to a self-driving car. That being said, I don't think that it makes any sense to focus all attention on self-driving cars. I think it makes more sense to build models that help humans drive better. For instance, by augmenting their peripheral vision right, or letting them know when they're veering off the expected calculated path, that can have an immediate impact in terms of safety. You can actually eliminate traffic accidents altogether by allowing the car to police the driver. So if the car determines that the driver is drunk, it can self-park on the side of the road, refusing to move forward until you know a designated driver can take over. Right. That doesn't require nearly the same level of sophistication as self-driving cars require. Self-driving cars may be a five-year or a 10-year journey. Who really cares? In the meantime, there is so much immediate value that can be had from creative use of these technologies to augment human decision-making and action. Right. That is a very good explanation. Really, this is the first time I'm hearing anyone argue this point from this direction. That is very impressive. And like you rightly pointed out, I think it will be more beneficial for automakers to direct their attention to developing AI systems that complement the abilities of a driver rather than building autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. So now let's consider the broader area of risk management in the face of a well-designed enterprise intelligence architecture. How can an intelligence architecture help a business manage its risk? Again, great question. I think the most important risk of all is the risk that you aren't paying attention to. Right. In this case, it is the existential risk of your business as a competitive entity. What do I mean by that? Well, if you play out the logical conclusions sort of of my arguments earlier, those enterprises that learn to learn fastest will build a moat of differentiation around them that is so insurmountable that their next best competitor will be so far behind as to eventually go out of business. Right. The best example is what happened to BlackBerry when the iPhone was introduced. Exactly. The value offering was so different and disruptive that few people even remember the BlackBerry today, which was actually at one point the king of the phone market. <laughs> right, that is true. So that is the sort of winner-take-all disruption that true enterprise intelligence will drive. If we analyze it a bit closer, the only difference between BlackBerry and Apple was, with, was actually with respect to innovation and learning. Right. BlackBerry shot up, you know, if you remember, like BlackBerry shot up so quickly that they thought they owned the market and reduced sort of their rate of innovation. Meanwhile, Apple was sort of this underdog and they were spending a significant amount of time and capital on reinventing, reimagining the entire concept of a phone. Almost overnight, BlackBerry was reduced to a footnote from a leading position. So 
existential risk due to the ever increasing rate of disruption is the primary thing, right? Right. So an intelligence architecture that facilitates learning and by proxy uh, innovation is the only investment that will truly, you know, protect you from a future that is full of these unknown unknowns. Now, many companies sort of discard their R&D as a cost center in favor of acquisition. Uh, But if you've noticed lately, the most disruptive companies with the most innovative technologies go from a footprint of a few million dollars in valuation to a footprint of a few billion dollars or more almost overnight. Uh, So if you're making an acquisition of a non-native technology, you face two risks. One, it doesn't actually have any market value. And two, any market value that it has is so wrapped up in the way that it operates that the acquisition will never realize the value through integration. Right. You also have to acknowledge that technologies that actually work and which quickly capture the market are the ones that rapidly become too out of reach for you to acquire. Mm-hmm. So acquisition is a poor strategy. Com- companies need to invest in their learning infrastructure that supports native innovation from within. That is the only insurance against disruption, though it's not, you know, it's not a guarantee. I mean, I, I would also, you know, as I pointed out earlier in, in earlier parts of my career, I've had the fortune of working on risk-related projects in a variety of industries where the return was, you know, in excess of 10x. Now, simple betting logic tells you that you should never turn out a deal that returns 10 to 1 on your investment, right? Right, right. That is a very good point. In recent times, you've seen a lot of big firms acquire several startups. This comes back to the point you were making. And really, that shouldn't be the case. They should rather focus on innovation, developing their own intelligence architecture to drive innovation. From what they are doing, it seems to me that they are trying to avoid competition. Let's buy the competitor so we keep our market share at the very least. And that's exactly what they are doing. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dr. Pratt, thank you very much for your time and your willingness to share your knowledge on the subject. It is well appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to the Risk Experience podcast and thank you for listening.